0: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
1: The sound of March Madness, a big business for the National College Athletic Association, bringing nearly a billion dollars in revenue last year, but zero to the players. The Supreme Court has agreed to consider the latest effort to have the NCAA's amateurism rules declared a violation of the antitrust laws, something that could upend the multi-billion dollar business model for college sports. Joining me is Andre Anderson, who heads the higher education practice at Bass, Barry and Sims. So, Audrey, the justices will review the Ninth Circuit decision that allowed student-athletes to be compensated as long as it was tied to education. What's the NCAA's argument for overturning that decision?
2: The NCAA's argument is that when you're looking at a rule that promotes amateurism, the court should give the NCAA some leeway because without those rules, The product that the NCAA is putting forward, college athletics, won't exist. So in antitrust law, there is a doctrine that says if you have a joint venture, which is what college athletics is, all the colleges come together to put forward this product of college athletics. If you have a joint venture, the participants in that joint venture are allowed some leeway to put together rules or agreements that allow the joint venture to exist. And, courts are supposed to give those participants some leeway. So the NCAA's argument is, hey, the Ninth Circuit was much too strict in the way it reviewed our amateurism rule in this case.
1: Why are both sides saying they're pleased the court took this case?
2: At the trial court level at the Ninth Circuit, neither side got everything it wanted. So both sides are pleased because the plaintiff, the student athlete, wanted much more. They wanted full out what we call pay for play. All they got was that they could be given benefits tied to education, and even those benefits that were tied to education, if they were cash or cash-like, they're limited in amount. So it's conceivable that the Supreme Court would say that the Ninth Circuit was not strict enough in the way it looked at the NCAA's rules. And you can still have a collegiate market with even fewer limits on the benefits that college athletes are able to obtain.
1: Does the court's 1984 decision in an NCAA case tell us anything about how it might decide the current case?
2: Well, I think the two sides have very different views on the answer to that question, June. That 1984 case gives us very limited information in how the court will approach this case. Because when the court was talking about the rules around amateurism in the 1984 case, they were looking at rules about television contracts. So they were only talking about the rules about amateurism to distinguish them from rules about TV contracts. A lot of people called that language in the 1984 case, dicta, not binding legal rules. In addition to that, the facts of college athletics have changed really dramatically in the last 36 years. And that's important when you're doing an antitrust analysis.
1: Could a decision by the Supreme Court change the structure of college sports and the relationship between college athletes and their
2: schools? It definitely could. If the Supreme Court held that the courts have free reign to be very intrusive in reviewing the rules the NCAA tries to put forward about what an amateur is or what kind of commercial relationship a student-athlete can have with its college and still participate in college athletics, that could really change things. If the plaintiff won full out, that is, student-athletes can be paid for their participation in college athletics and the NCAA can't stop that, that would upend everything. I'd be really surprised if the Supreme Court went that far. But in any event, this could really change up what happens. In college athletics.
1: So, might a Supreme Court decision put an end to this controversy over amateurism?
2: Whatever happens in this case, it's only one battlefront for the NCAA. Even if they were to win this case and the court were to say, yes, as an antitrust matter, the NCAA gets to define what amateurism means the state legislatures are making laws saying that college athletes can get unlimited amounts of money from third parties for selling their name, image, and likeness. And that changes the way that college sports looks quite a bit. And the Supreme Court's decision isn't going to do anything to change those efforts.
1: Is the NCAA already in the process of changing its rules to allow athletes to be compensated for the use of their names, images, and likenesses?
2: Yes, they have proposed some changed rules to allow student-athletes to get some limited compensation for name, image, and likeness rights, but I don't think that the rule changes will satisfy the state legislatures who have already passed laws. They're just not enough. As long as there's so much money in college athletics that's going to the coaches and the universities and not to the student-athletes. The NCAA is going to have to withstand the pressure in the courts and from the state legislatures to do something more to allow college athletes to more directly benefit.
1: That's Audrey Anderson of Bass, Barry and Sims. If there were any lingering doubts about the government's inclination to go after the tech giants, that's been resoundingly settled with antitrust actions escalating in the final weeks of the year. Google is facing three antitrust lawsuits and Facebook two lawsuits. And the lawsuits against Facebook by the Federal Trade Commission and a group of 46 states seek to break up the social media giant, alleging that Facebook thwarted competition to protect its monopoly. Here's New York Attorney General Letitia James. No company should have this much unchecked power over our personal information and our social interactions. Joining me is antitrust expert Harry First, a professor at NYU Law School. Harry, tell us the basics of the government suits.
0: There are two cases filed, and they're pretty much the same, although not completely the same, one by the Federal Trade Commission and the other by a group of states. And the basics are sort of two parts. It looks at how Facebook has maintained its monopoly position in the personal social network uh, market by, first of all, acquiring uh, aggressive startup competitors that might challenge it in one way or another, and second, by conduct which says we'll allow you developers to work with us on our platform and interoperate with us so long as you don't challenge our, what they call, core functionality, You know, get too close to being a real competitor rather than an addition to what we offer. So those are the two basic aspects. On the first, with regard to acquisitions, as I think is well known, the the focus has been on two major acquisitions for which Facebook paid a lot of money: Instagram and WhatsApp. The state complaint adds a bunch of other acquisitions to the list. Facebook has acquired a lot of companies over time, I guess, but the basic uh, focus has been on those two, and for Somewhat different reasons, Zuckerberg particularly, but others at Facebook were concerned that they posed a direct competitive challenge to the dominance that Facebook had already achieved. And it was easier to buy them than compete with them. Those are the basic aspects of both complaints.
1: Does the government have to prove that Facebook bought the companies, bought WhatsApp and Instagram to kill competition?
0: That is their theory, yes. So the theory relies a lot on internal documents at this point, at least the complaints as presented, Um, a lot of emails, presumably there'll also be uh, interviews, depositions, and at some point perhaps a trial um, as to what the purpose was of these acquisitions. And also, presumably, they'll have some outside experts which verify that this wasn't paranoia but a legitimate concern that these upstarts. Uh, might challenge what they're doing. They are making out a case that these weren't just um, sort of neutral acquisitions to advance their business, but were really done to suppress a competitor. That could be Pepsi.
1: The state's complaint also quotes from former Instagram CEO Kevin Systrom asking an Instagram investor if Zuckerberg was likely to go into destroy mode if he was turned down. Systrom said, quote, bottom line i don't think we'll ever escape the wrath of mark is the government trying to paint a picture of zuckerberg here and why
0: i think there's a degree of personalization you know zuckerberg's personality as as there was in the microsoft litigation in the 1990s when it was bill gates who was in control and, and you know and what he was trying to do so this idea that zuckerberg had developed a reputation as you know, the state complaint says buy or bury strategy. Either you know you sell out to us, or we're going to make your uh, competitive life miserable. And yes, there's some there's some focus on him, which is legitimate since he is the head of the company. And there are other emails from other people, of course, and um, presumably there will be others. But yeah, it's to try to show you know this wasn't done to advance competition, but to suppress it.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, but there were also emails of Bill Gates in the Microsoft trial, weren't there? Don't they learn that they can't put anything in emails?
0: You know, the most wonderful thing about antitrust litigation is how familiar it is. <laughs> <laughs> Writing things that damage your case preceded the development of email. And, you know, it used to be just harder to find these documents because you had to physically search through files. But I mean, this seriously, literally from the beginning of the antitrust laws, statements that business executives have made in one way or another have been used to hang them and to show intent. And the courts often say that intent isn't relevant. We look at objective facts, but intent does help you understand what the facts mean, and has always played a role. And John D. Rockefeller, in putting together Standard Oil, used the same sort of tactics. He would say, look, if you don't sell out to me, I'm just going to cut prices on you completely and push you out of business. So you really don't have a choice. And Zuckerberg did basically the same thing in a number of instances. Either you sell out to us or we're just going to copy all your features and you won't be able to survive. So, yeah, they keep writing these things. Thank God. And antitrust lawyers keep finding them.
1: (laughs) Facebook says... One of the arguments is that these apps needed Facebook's investment to reach their current levels of success. Is that a good argument for Facebook?
0: I mean, it is an argument they will make. They have not the opportunity. I mean, obviously, this the one-sided document. We're reading these two complaints. And so um, they have a response, which is, you know, after we acquired them, uh, we've invested a lot of money in making them better, money that these companies – might not have been able um, to get, and the uh, degree of interoperability these companies couldn't have achieved on their own. So the, the bottom line for consumers is that consumers are better off, not worse off, um, and these companies have been developed in, in ways that uh, are quite helpful. Now, whether that's true or not, it will be tested in court as well. You know, can they, can they make that argument? I assume they can make an argument that they've invested in these companies um, so Instagram case may be easier to make than WhatsApp. Um, I think there was a lot of, um, disagreement with the old, um, management of WhatsApp as to what that application should be. Um, but that, this is fodder for the trial and it, it is a plausible legal argument.
1: Like the Google case, consumers don't pay anything to use Facebook. Okay what kind of challenge does that pose to the government in proving its case
0: right well two answers one answer is that the government complaints make an effort to show what the consumer harm was I mean obviously they cannot say the consumers are paying more than they should although there's there's a sophisticated argument that um, uh, Facebook should pay consumers uh, because you know that you, you Sometimes companies actually buy customers uh, because they make money that way by having more of them. And so that would not, you know, the price of zero may be more than than it should be, <laughs> if you understand what I'm saying. Yes, But I do. Um, but that is not the argument the government's making, and wisely so. What the government's trying to do is to say something that many people have said, and that, um, you know, value to consumers is not just... The price, but quality and, and innovation, which are sort of similar. But they're non-price qualities that that are important. You know, there was the, the, the famous uh, Hershey bar example where Hershey didn't change the price of the Hershey bar, they just cut down the size of the bar. Uh, so um, that's basically the argument they're making. The price is zero, but the product keeps being degraded and you get... Um, consumers get less value for it. So um, you, you don't get as many choices. Your your choices on privacy have been changed over time to be less favorable to consumers. The states argue, interestingly, I think, that the ad load has changed so that you get more ads now um, than you used to. And they have a, apparently an email saying that, this is a tax on consumers uh, who <laughs> wants more ads. But um, apparently they have data that show that the amount of ads that you have to scroll through um, has increased. And that's another way of saying the price has increased. Um, and, you know, so I think a judge is going to have to be convinced that not to look just at price, but at other aspects, non-price, quality aspects of the product. So that's that's one answer. The second answer is the idea that you have to prove an effect on price is actually not legally required. And um, the last major case like this, which is Microsoft, um, there was never any proof of effect on price. Never. It was all about um, squashing a nascent competitor, you know, helping to push them out of business through various um, uh, tactics that Microsoft pursued. And um, in some ways, very similar to what the government's arguing here, but n- never an argument that uh, price was expected.
1: We look back now and we say the government actually approved both the acquisition of Instagram in 2012 and WhatsApp in 2014. And Facebook is using that as a response to the government
0: saying, you approve these. (laughs) Yes, this is what they call an inconvenient. Well, I call it an inconvenient half-truth. So legally, that's actually untrue. The government did not approve these acquisitions. What the government does when it reviews acquisitions, what the U.S. government does, others are different, actually. The U.S. government does is it decides whether to sue or not. It doesn't approve a merger. It's very clear. That it doesn't, and the government its guidelines says that. All they do is they decide whether to sue. So they decided not to sue. They didn't approve the mergers. And there have been cases where the government goes back after the merger is completed and brings suit, because the problem with a merger is you're trying to predict what competition is going to look like in the future, or as one recent judge says, you know, I've got to have a crystal ball. And that's tough. <laughs> You know, hard to predict the future. So that's sometimes a high burden. Now, there are cases where the government is allowed to do legally, to do afterwards and say, you know what, look at what's happened. We don't have to guess at what the effect was on competition. Now we know, oh my God, we we can do something about it. So the government is legally allowed to do that. So that's why I say it's an inconvenient half-truth. The government did, the FTC itself did Review both of these mergers, decided not to challenge them, uh, as the Europeans did as well, except the Europeans actually approved them under European competition. So as a tactical matter, of course, Facebook is going to say, and as some ring of plausibility, look, um, we make a lot of accusations. You're going to go back and just examine a few of them and say, aha, we're going to overturn this, overturn that. That's not the way the law is supposed to work. It's a Problem with the narrative, but there are responses to that that the government plaintiffs are going to have. In particular, you know, all those emails—they didn't have them when they made the decision on Instagram and on WhatsApp. Facebook made some promises about what it wouldn't do, and then proceeded to break the promises. So, not so fast, Facebook. You weren't straight with us when we reviewed the mergers, and uh, now we know their effects.
1: This is always the headline. The government is asking for a breakup of Facebook by spinning off Instagram and WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. How big a hurdle is that for the government?
0: Reorganizing or breaking them up, uh, depends on whether you like the polite or the colloquial, is always a hurdle for the government. Now, past history in monopoly cases, which is what this, this position does mostly, is that when there are breakups, if you can break up a company by the divisions that it has acquired so that, in effect, you're just sort of unbreaking them but not completely reorganizing them, that's considered more likely, easier to do. Sort of think of a Lego set, I guess. You know, you can take the blocks apart, and, you know, there were blocks together. That's more plausible. Now, Facebook has made efforts of the recent past, maybe over the last year or so, to integrate both companies more fully, whatever exactly that means, I'm not sure, into Facebook as a unitary company. I think uh, anticipating lawsuits, And so they're going to say that technically, you can say we can divest these companies, but this is tremendously disruptive and costly and will end up harming consumers by giving us, you know, a less valuable Facebook, a less valuable Instagram, and a less valuable WhatsApp. So judge, even if you find we violated the law, this is not an appropriate remedy. It's a harmful remedy. And what you should do is just enter an order stopping us from whatever bad conduct you found, and that should cure the problem. So I think that's roughly how the argument might go. But the government's not committed to reorganizing Facebook this way. They might learn that there's a better way to break Facebook up into smaller companies that could compete with each other, but that's for the future yet.
1: As we talked about, the government has also filed an antitrust suit against Google. Which case has a better chance in court? Google or Facebook?
0: They both face similar issues, the free goods, the consumer side. So that's similar. There are different business practices. I think Google, as we discussed, is sort of more straightforward legally because these were contractual agreements over the Android operating system, and in that sense, sort of is even closer to the Microsoft facts and litigation. Facebook is similar to Microsoft, too, because it's also an effort to suppress an nascent competitor, but instead of one tactic, you know, the question that people raise is, well, suppose Facebook had decided to acquire the Upstart Browser, Netscape, instead of just trying to push them out of business. Then it would look just like Facebook. So they both have similarities to the Microsoft case, and each of them are a little different. So I'm not quite sure how to answer that. I think they're both plausible cases, and we'll just have to see what the strengths of of the facts are when these cases, or if these cases, go to trial.
1: Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Harry. That's Professor Harry First of NYU Law School. TikTok is one of the most popular apps in the world with more than 100 million U.S. users. A panel of judges on the D.C. Court of Appeals has signaled skepticism of the Trump administration's continuing efforts to ban new downloads of the Chinese-owned video sharing app, making it unlikely that any TikTok ban will go into effect. Joining me is Annette Allenbeck, assistant professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Law. Any insight into why TikTok has not been able to close a deal with an American buyer? Well, I mean, I'm just speculating, but I would think that there are a few things that are going on. One
3: could be that they're waiting for a different administration. I doubt that, but maybe they're stalling. Another one could be that the deal has to go through and there's a lot that's involved. Is there going to be divestment of the ownership? How is that going to be? How is Um, information of investors going to be protected, who's going to own what, how do they make sure that, you know, if they stay involved, they don't have access to that information that the government wants to protect. I'm just assuming that that's why it's taking a lot of time. It needs to be approved. They need to figure all that information out.
1: The deadline set by the Trump administration for requiring ByteDance to sell TikTok has passed. Mm-hmm. What does it signal that the government hasn't gone to court to force a divestiture?
3: To me, it means that the government, for now, again, we could be surprised, right? But for now, it means that the government is not pressing on this. But again, like I said, it could mean that there's a deal in the works that we don't know about. It could mean that the government decided not to continue to take actions on this, and they're waiting for the next administration, it could mean that there's other actions that the government's going to take. For example, I don't know if you saw, but recently the FCC has asked TikTok and other companies to ask for information on how are they protecting the users' privacy. What are they doing with the information they're aggregating on users? There could be several things, but uh, one thing is clear is that the government, you know, had this deadline. They extended the deadline. The deadline has passed but they haven't done anything since.
1: Explain why two federal judges, one in Washington, D.C. and one in Pennsylvania, blocked the Commerce Department from prohibiting new downloads of TikTok. Right, and,
3: and that's very good that you said that because we really need to separate the things. We need to separate on the one hand these two orders, right? The one order was to divest, and the other order was a ban, and that is on uh, on app stores and to allow new users to download the app. And the issue is really with regards to the second, and that is censorship, right? Censorship of speech, censorship of uh, social media applications. And there's a concern here of privacy, of national
1: security. Explain for us what the issue was during the oral arguments of the D.C. Circuit? There were a few issues. One of the issues is
3: with regards to um, the IEPA ban. And then whether there's an exception for information and communication, whether the president has or does not have authority to regulate or prohibit directly or indirectly any personal communication, doesn't involve a transfer of anything of value, or any information or information materials. And really, they put a lot of focus on this word indirectly. And it's very important because there could be many different kind of bans. And that's why it's interesting to see how the court's going to interpret this. They're going to look at TikTok messages on the app or on the company, and whether there was authority or not to do that. And then also, you know, even when the government talks about national security, then You might ask the question, national security from what and from whom? And is there a privacy violation? Is this the correct way of addressing that kind of harm and also showing the harm? Uh, So there's
1: so many different issues
3: um, that the court is going
1: to deal with here. One of the judges, Judith Rogers, said Congress wrote this language and the government's justification for the ban seems to fly in the face of that. What language is she talking about? That's a great question.
3: So now we're talking about the free speech implications of, of the sanctions, right? And, and the question is whether these sanctions are really what Congress has intended. And, and, and again, they're looking at the interpretation of the IEEPA and whether it gives the president broad authority to uh, freeze assets or bar financial transactions or and what the president can do. And, and I would just say that that was changed a few times. And that Congress specifically excluded from the president the powers and the ability to regulate directly or indirectly a range of informational materials, whether they're commercial or not. And the amendment itself explicitly mentioned materials such as publications, films, photographs. So there's a lot of discussion on that, on whether it was even allowed because what they wanted to do is to protect free speech. Okay. And so the question is whether that's violated here or not based on that
1: interpretation. To effect. Did it seem to you as if the judges were skeptical of the government's conduct? What I think is, is really
3: happening here is that the judges know, you know, of, of the intentions of, and, and, uh, of the laws and, and the protections of, you know, free speech and, free, and the First Amendment. And what they're really pushing, I think, the government to do is to explain what is it that you're doing? What is the harm? Explain it to us. What's going on? And I think it's very important in light of everything that's happening. I, and I think there's no doubt that there is, you know, and you can see what's happening, right? There's no doubt that there are issues with TikTok. Other countries have banned TikTok. There's issues with, um, there may be issues with with regards to national security. It's just the issue is here whether that particular action, okay, uh, of, of banning, the app in the stores after you have so many millions of Americans that are already using it. Whether that's the correct measure and whether the president has authority to take that measure. I think that's really what's going on here.
1: Under a Biden administration, do you think that the government will continue to press for a sale of TikTok or bans on TikTok? That's a great question because that's a question
3: that I'm you know I'm asking myself too because I think that although, you know, for example so I write about mergers and acquisitions and, and CFIUS, that's um, the uh, committee that's reviewing, uh, you know, deals with foreigners invest in um, U.S. technologies or now emerging technologies and how the Trump administration has actually gave CPS more authority to look into those um, types of transactions. I think that definitely... The Biden administration is also going to scrutinize those types of uh, transactions, especially when it comes to national security. Um, Whether it's going to have the same flair as the Trump administration, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe not. But I think that, you know, look at what's happening around the world. Look at what's happening in the United States. You will see that they're going to step up investigations on privacy. They're going to step up, I think... Again, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking investigations on whether investments have to do with national security or don't before they clear certain deals. Um, so I, I still think it's, it's, it's going to be, um, you know, in the background um, and especially with what's happening in that, you know, area, uh, not just here in the US, but around the world. So I, I definitely think so. How they're going to do that, you know, it's, it's up to the Biden administration, and I guess time will tell, but it's definitely an issue that's going to continue um, to be relevant, I think. And I don't know, he might act differently, or the people that he's going to appoint are going to act differently or going to put different emphasis. I don't know, but I will definitely think that there's, um, there is momentum uh, for, for example, maybe for more uh, privacy laws, right? uh for more um protections of consumers so um i think it's still going to be uh quite an issue because um you know i i don't know if you know this if you read my piece i just wrote a piece about alternative venture capital and the new unicorn investors and what i found is more and more international players are investing In you know in in our private firms for different reasons sometimes for financial reasons sometimes they have strategic reasons right Um, they might want to get access to the technology that the companies are working for or they want might want to be able to establish you know some sort of partnerships or collaborations that maybe have a subsidiary in their own country so there could be you know different reasons for why they invest or maybe for financial reasons they want to make more money but. The point is is that we're seeing more and more of these investments those are it's one of the players that uh, you know uh definitely investing in our private markets and they're investing in private markets for several reasons also because those are private firms there's less scrutiny versus if it was a public firm right and those firms are usually you know could be under the radar for example unicorns are you know well-known firms. they have a reputation but if it's a if it's a tech startup, right? It might be less visible um, and definitely doesn't have to disclose information to the public the way a public company would have to. So we're definitely seeing that trend Uh, and we're seeing CPS uh, even before the Trump administration, but especially during the Trump administration, uh, looking into these deals and, and they've blocked several deals. Can you give us some examples? I can give you, you know, several examples. For example, um, you have Grindr and you have patients like me, right? And patients like me, for example, is a healthcare startup and it it was forced into a fire sale. Uh, And uh, Grindr was, uh, you know, a dating app and that also collected personal uh, data on users and also you know, the government tried to stop that. And there's Howie, Monogram, and Financial, and many more examples. And if you look around the world, it's not just here. For example, with Howie, the U.K. recently also said that they're going to ask, um, you know, with regards to Howie, that um, they're not going to use that in the U.K. as well. Your final thoughts about this? What I think is really the issue here is privacy. Um, That's why, for example, we're seeing all these antitrust lawsuits, right? And that's why we're seeing the FCC probing into these companies. Now, maybe we should think about having more privacy protection in the United States. I think there's room, and I'm hoping that the next administration is maybe going to push for those. Because I think it's important to protect consumers here. I think we're seeing those initiatives take place around the world. And it's important to do two things. One is, of course, to protect consumers, but also to encourage innovation and entrepreneurship and investments in U.S. companies, right? So we have to be very delicate when we're balancing all these things. But definitely in terms of privacy, as a consumer myself of technology, I would like to know companies are not using my information, whether they're American companies or other companies are selling my data, using AI to aggregate information on me. You know, marketing to me that way using profiles. So I really think that um, it would be nice to see if we have more protection of, of consumer privacy
1: here in the United States. Thanks for being on the show. That's Annette Allen Beck, assistant professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.